This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, activists in Greenville, North Carolina, demand community control of the police. And we'll hear from a psychologist who's done a study of the varied ideologies held by black women. But first, Shannon Jones is co-founder of Bronxites for NYPD Accountability, which on June 4th led a protest in the South Bronx section of New York that was massively attacked by police who claimed the marchers had violated a curfew. At least 61 marchers and bystanders were injured, according to a Human Rights Watch study. More than 250 were arrested, including Ms. Jones. She says the cops had been waiting for a chance to crack down on the movement. As you know, we've conducted our FTP action since November 1st of 2019, in sustained anger with police and police brutality, particularly in the MTA transit system, with the brutality against Adrian Napier and the school children at on the J Street platform, which went on to abuse of young people selling candy in the train station, the Truro ladies, the additional 500 MTA cops that were added by Governor Cuomo, and the ongoing brutality that New Yorkers face and the fact that Black people have to carry the entire city on our backs through low-wage labor through the coronavirus as delivery people, stock people, warehouse workers, grocery workers. So after the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, the FTP formation made another call to action for June 4th. So yes, I was the first person arrested. The police used an uber military action, which included all levels of the police department from TARU, which is the counterterrorism task force, SRG, strategic response group, uniformed officers in riot gear. They used what we're calling robo bikes, which they militarized bikes against the people in the community of the Bronx. So it was very harrowing and typical, typical. That's what I will say. Now, when this huge force of police officers, which included about 24 white shirts, those are the lieutenants and captains and the highest ranking uniformed officer on the New York City police force, when they surrounded you and the rest of the demonstrators, they said that you were violating a curfew. Well, all of the videos that are available across social media platforms from people that lived in the surrounding neighborhood, the Millbrook NYCHA residents, the homeowners on Brook Avenue and 136th Street, people that had high floor access in their buildings through the entire protest have already documented that the New York City Police Department engaged in kettling of us before 8 o'clock. 
In other words, they had surrounded you and didn't permit you to leave so that you would be there when the curfew hour struck. That is correct. So if one were to go to the live streaming of my organization on FTP4 on June 4th, you can see that my live stream begins before 8 p.m. And by that time, the police had already created the formation in the front, around the sides, and in the back of about 300 people before 8 p.m. I'm on the other side of that, and that's when the chief of uniforms, Terrence Monaghan, orders my arrest at exactly 8 o'clock. Now, Human Rights Watch has done a 99-page report on the police behavior while they were arresting you and before they made the arrests, and they describe it as basically a police force gone lawless. And that is the concern about the Human Rights Watch report. The Human Rights Watch report, it's very thorough and very comprehensive, however, It engages in typical whitewashing of police impunity against black people. It didn't start with protests around the murder of George Floyd. It didn't start at 8 p.m. on June 4th. It didn't start at 7.46 p.m. on June 4th against protesters in the Bronx. The brutality against African people goes back to the late 1500s and definitely by 16. So this is not new. So when the Human Rights Watch report calls FTP4 and what we now call it Bronx Bloody Thursday, a violation of international human rights, what should be the violation of international human rights is the kidnapping of Africans to these shores and the ongoing brutality that we have faced since. Tell us what you witnessed on June 4th. What I witnessed on June 4th, and and I will definitely begin with the positive. At Roberto Clemente Park, we handed out food, PPE, masks, gloves, supplies to the people in the hub in the Bronx. So in the hub, which is at 149th Street and 3rd Avenue, which really is the second busiest trafficked district in the city of New York next to Times Square. It is also home to many homeless shelters, HIV housing, mental health, New York, New York 3 housing, homeless people, disconnected youth. There are homeless encampments in the area and surrounding area while clashing with extreme gentrification at the same time. So our action began with serving the people, which is always important. We must always be connected and stay connected with our own people. We are in no way different. We are all swimming in the same swamp of racialized capitalism. So that's how it really started off. And with speeches from the organizers to get people you know, engage and to make sure they were clear on what our politics are about, which differed very, very broadly from the politics of other organized actions over the past few days after the murder of George Floyd. And we also felt that resistance should always be present 
in the Bronx, particularly in the South Bronx. SSY Accountability, Bronx Sites for NYPD Accountability, as we are known in full, is a Bronx organization that was a no-brainer for us. So after, you know, the motivational speeches from the organizers and the passing out of food and personal protective equipment, which I might add that the business owners are taking advantage of the South Bronx community because at, by that time in June, one mask costs $3, a disposable, just one. If you bought a reusable mask from any of those stores, you could pay 7 to $9. So we understood the plight of our people in the South Bronx and provided for basic needs in the form of mutual aid. So we proceeded in the southward direction, going downtown from 149th Street. And we were followed by a line of police. And we traveled through the public housing developments of the Bronx. Again, because it's important to bring resistance and proper Black politics to our friends and family that are often forgotten in the political sphere and are also neglected by the policies of the Democratic mayor and governor of the state. So as we traveled through and made our way to 138th Street and Brook Avenue, we could see a line of, for lack of a better term, robo-bikes lined up in front of the Willis Avenue Bridge. As we were doing it for the Bronx, we had no intention of going over the bridge into Harlem. This was for the people of the Bronx. So that was a misstep on their part. And looking back at it in hindsight, I think it produced an additional anger within them to smash us and really harm us. So as we proceeded east on 136th Street, once we got to Brown and Brook and 136th Street, this is where the robo-bikes traveled from 134 east and came up north on Brook Avenue to trap us in the westbound direction while a police line behind us on 136th Street and Brown Place trapped us on the west side of the block. I was able to weave through the bikes before they made their full formation on all four sides of the group. So as I'm on the other side, the chief of police, the chief, and, and I, and I want to be clear to the listeners about that, this is not some rogue uniform officer that does not know what he's doing. This is the highest level uniform officer in the entire department, which is two steps down from the mayor himself, Mayor de Blasio, and orders my arrest for which a black, highly uniformed officer at this time, he is unnamed, puts me in a chokehold, for which there's a video of that. All of this is happening at precisely 8 p.m. And I am placed in a chokehold, thrown to the ground. Other plainclothes officers run up, put their knees on my neck and my back, and then I'm taken off to jail. So all of the subsequent videos that are filmed from precisely 8.05 until after midnight, thank you to the Millbrook residents that continued to film as long as they could in order to document the brutality happened out of my eyesight. I basically spent the next approximately seven hours in lockup at the 4.0 precinct. 
According to reports, about 250 people were arrested, and at least 60 of them were injured, although the injured were not given treatment for a long time. Yes, and this was the particularly disgusting part. For anyone that has been in a resistance action in New York City, there are legal observers and street medics that will be there to provide, you know, medical attention where needed until the ambulance can come and legal observers that are there to document police action in order to protect the rights of protesters that are in attendance. And for Bronx Bloody Thursday, the NYPD engaged in assault of street medics and legal observers. What I want to add clearly here is because our organizers, we put Black first, and Black Legal Observers Coalition was in the lead for that action. But because NYPD is accustomed to seeing green hats, they began slamming NLG legal observers to the ground, snatching their paperwork, and brutalizing them. Our issue with the Human Rights Watch report in that vein is white supremacy will always pedestal the interests of white supremacy. So in this instance, the legal profession will pedestal black and brown organizers, black and brown protesters, black and brown residents, right? So we want to be careful and make sure that it's understood that this brutality that was levied not only to legal observers and street medics, it was because this was a black march organized by black people independent of the nonprofit industrial complex, independent of control opposition from large non-governmental organizations. You can fill in the blank there. And it was raw, independent, and determined. So this is why the mayor particularly and Commissioner Shea sought to smash it with what I would call vigilante violence. I definitely believe it was in retaliation for the three previous FTP actions that really shook the city around over-policing of Black people. Yes, it appears the police wanted to make an example out of folks who were saying, F the police. And as you said, arrested you first. That is absolutely correct. And I want to add, any, any anybody can say FTP, right? You can use it with the profanity, F-E-C-K. It could mean feed the people, as I've said on this platform before, F the prisons, etc. And you will find other organizers, organized groups, unaffiliated groupings or individuals of people saying FTP, right? So people were saying FTP already. So why did it mean that this particular FTP action on June 4th was met with such militarized violence? It is because when we say, when the FTP organizers say FTP, it includes the black politics that have the potential to raise up organized power from black people. It's not just a hollowed out platitude, right? So these phrases like defund the police and abolish the police and abolish ICE and abolish prisons, right? White supremacy is not afraid of that anymore. The formula is to hollow out those phrases that come from Black radical tradition into empty platitudes that have no meaning and do not seek to organize the people. 
So when FTP formation comes out, we seek to organize the people for empowerment. Now, in terms of the charges that were levied against you, what's the status? Okay, the status of my charges at the time of my arrest, I was charged with resisting arrest as the sole charge. Most of us that received desk appearance tickets uh, had return court dates of October 2nd. For myself and some others, the DA has declined to prosecute. So right now, (laughs) I have no criminal case. Now, it's not just the police in your view. After all, the top officer was right there on the scene. And as you said, he's only two steps below the mayor. That is absolutely correct. When Why Accountability took Mike in order to speak to the people, we made it abundantly clear. We live in New York City. So-called Democrats control this city from the legislature, assembly, the mayor, the governor. So what's the problem here? The Democrats may want to frame all of our problems as coming from the Trump administration. Our problems are not four years old, they're 400 years old. So these kinds of speeches and this kind of dialogue and this kind of engagement and this type of community building and empowerment is definitely not something that the oligarchs, the Democrats, the corporatists, the globalists want to come from community power, particularly when you're talking about 400,000 units of NYCHA buildings in the city of New York. That is the sleeping giant. And for us to go through as a resistance action through the NYCHA development, the city and the state definitely don't want that giant awakened. Well, clearly the cops wanted to slow down the momentum of the protest movement in New York City. Do you think they've succeeded? Absolutely not. What I've learned from elders and mentors and jegnas is This is a struggle. That's why it's called the Black struggle. And it will always continue as long as we have poor health care, poor housing conditions, police brutality. We don't have control of our education, our entertainment, our culture, our religion, our own personal bodies, no control over land infrastructure. We're struggling to find nationhood amongst ourselves. These resistance actions and and insurrections will continue. Whether they are necessarily me in particular remains to be seen, but they will always continue. What I would encourage all of the listeners on Black Agenda Report to do is follow the money. There are so many organizations that are profiting and poverty pimping off of black pain and struggle. Many of them reach back to the same corporate globalists that fund police organizations, that fund fraternal orders and engage in controlled opposition. Support your local grassroots organizations that are not 501c3, that monies do not trace back to white philanthropy and engage in material support of these organizations and also develop your own community power. Why accountability can be found across social media platforms. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, and your support 
helps us do more, whether it is resistance actions, mutual aid in the community. We just had a back-to-school supply drive that included privacy shields for our children. Now with remote learning, the powers are gaining access and view into our homes through the Board of Education, and we are seeking to stop that. We do not need our children being prison pipelined through remote learning. So we are doing a lot of things and still doing plenty of community work that requires your support, and we thank you. That was Shannon Jones of Bronxites for NYPD Accountability. Activists have clashed repeatedly with police in the eastern North Carolina city of Greenville. The protests have been led by the Mapinduzi organization and the Coalition Against Racism. Mapinduzi spokesman Dedan Wakiuri says Greenville's government continues to reject demands for community control of police an independent prosecutor for police brutality cases, and that a police substation be turned into a people's resource center. However, the city did agree to end its involvement with the Pentagon's 1033 program that funnels military weapons and equipment to local police. Before and after the death of our dear brother George Floyd, Martha Hinduzi understood the question of militarization in our communities. We understood that the 1033 program is something that Greenville, North Carolina police officers had involved themselves in. And the 1033 program is one of those programs that only intensifies the domestic colonial agenda in black and brown communities. And we understood that to alleviate some of the ills that go on in our communities is getting rid of the 1033 program is one of those ills. We demanded it for a while. But um, after the the death of George Floyd and people took to the streets in Greenville, the colonized people in Greenville resisted in a way that wasn't ever seen in Greenville. They said that they ended it. But we know for a fact that it's probably not as ended the way that we want it to be ended because they came out with an article that said that, you know, they ended the 1033 program and they're sending the weapons back that they received from the 1033 program. But these weapons that they said that they received from the program was what they call ceremonial rifles that have been altered in a way that it just only shoot blanks and they use it for ceremonial purposes. But um, at the same token, in the same breath, we also know that Greenville Police Department also has a huge, huge, huge amount of money that they receive from forfeited assets with the seized property. They go out in the street and they get the people that peddle the trash in the streets. After they do that, then they reclaim all the assets and the values that they seize from these people. And they also receive a lot of money from these things that also puts them in a position to buy more weapons. They have weapons now, armored vehicles, assault rifles, and things like that. And all of this weaponry came from seized assets and not from the 1033 program. So even though we know they have disbanded from the 1033 program, we also know in the same token that they have other ways to militarize themselves. So, you know, we look at it as a partial victory, but at the same token, you know, we have to organize the people around other demands. And you did have other demands, five other demands that have not yet been met. Right. You're asking for a uh, civilian police review board with subpoena power and prosecutorial power and the ability for uh, the people, the community members that we want to sit on the council the ability to open the books and really um, go over the records of these terroristic officers that sit on the force. The review board, we, we know that you know that's somewhat a reform, and we understand that, but we use this as a reform to move 
the people, to prepare the people forward, to advance the people on small things in the beginning for only larger demands that can come. We can eventually turn into, you know, community control of the police and things like that. So, you know, these are just steps to really just raise a level of consciousness in the people to understand that, you know, when we raise higher demands and the stakes is higher, and we have way more to gain. The review board is one of them. And in the 1033 program was one of them. A private prosecutor for our cases is something that we're also demanding. You're also demanding that the West Greenville substation be turned into a people's resource center. What's that? The substation is a little, um, we call it the overseer's house. It's a mini police station in West Greenville, which is the heart of the black community here in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. Majority of the, the black population that stays in the city limits stays in the West Greenville area. And what happens is they set up various substations, these little police stations in different locations in our communities. And what we say and what we understand is that they serve no purpose, which we know. We know that the only reason that they continue to set up shop in our neighborhood is just to continue the overwhelming surveillance that they do constantly in our communities. But when it comes to anything beneficial from this, we see that it benefits the people none. So, you know, this entity in our community is a cancer that must be removed, and we know that. But it also must be this building that they use must be transitioned into something that's beneficial for the people. So we say we don't want it to be a overseer's house where the police just come in and watch them, you know, try to dominate over our people. But we want it to be a resource center where the people have the ability to say what it is that comes in and out of their community, a center where people have the ability to uh, go get minor health care testing, uh, be able to go and apply for certain things that, they don't have the access to readily. You know, these are the things that we want in our community. We want things in our community that give our people the ability to thrive and be successful just like any other healthy community. But as long as there is parasitic entities in our community, such as police stations and substations, then, you know, there will always be a, a level of danger and terror in our community. So we understand that we don't need these things, you know. Yes, and this is different than the simple defund the police demand in that it calls for money to be spent in specific ways demanded by the black community. Right. Defunding the police is is a tricky one, you know, because the institution itself is still built on brutality and on, on murder and all these type of things that keep it going today. So the question of defunding, it's important that we go over and we look into it and, and try to go over all the contradictions. But as an institution as a whole, the institution of policing, it can't be reformed. It can't be defunded to a certain extent where it's going to work on the behalf of the people. In our views, it's something that eventually, whether it's through a withering away process, eventually the institution of policing must be abolished as a whole if black people, if colonized people in this country will have any peace. We've noted that much of the movement doesn't put a high profile on U.S. foreign policy, but you're a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. Does Mapunduzi emphasize the connection between domestic Black grievances like you have in Greenville and global U.S. behavior? Oh, yeah, of course. Mapunduzi, we're internationally. We make those connections domestically and internationally. When we were demanding the end to the 1033 program, we was making those connections with how, you know, these same tactics and these same uses of force, the same way that they treat people in the global south. It's the same way they treat people in Palestine and places like that. And then they come over because Raleigh, North Carolina, I would say three years ago, was a part of the exchange program, the Degley Exchange Program, where they send their officers to the illegal occupied state of Israel 
to be trained by these, these officers, you see? And then they take this training and they come back and they, they use it on the people here, on black and brown people here. So, you know, we definitely are trying to make those connections with our people here domestically to really tie it in to see that the same forces and the same institution that's against our people here in this empire is the same forces and the same institutions that attack our people constantly in South America, in the global South and places like that. So it's very important that we understand that any of our struggles to end capitalism and to end colonialism and imperialism is not only a struggle on our end here in this empire, but it's a connected struggle to the people in our other places. You know, it's a connected struggle to our people in Venezuela who are dealing with blockades. The hood, you know, we might not deal with blockades on a level as Venezuela, but we live in a situation where we can't get health care at a ready access. We can't get food that is nutrition enough for our development, for our children. You know, we don't have these things that are ready access. And it's because of the United States government, just like it's because the United States government is stopping these things internationally. So it's important that we make these connections. And uh, we definitely try to make these connections. My Penduzi definitely tried to make these connections in collaboration with that. And during the course of these protests, a number of people were arrested. But your demand that they be released and charges dropped has not yet been met. No, um, I'm actually, I was caught up in that myself. I'm actually going to court for that myself. They tried to say that I incited a riot and damage to some police car. And some other people got similar charges. But no, charges have not been dropped here in Pitt County. And that's something that we continue to demand and we continue to press on and push forward that these people that was caught up in the uprising in Greenville, you know, charges be dismissed because what people are accusing people of is a couple of smashed windows and a flagpole got bent. It was really no, when you really look at other cities in this nation, Greenville was very lucky <laughs> that things did not go the way that it went in other places. When you look at what's going on in places like Aurora or in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, where the people are, are really resistant to taking to the streets. And that level of resistance wasn't as high as it was in Greenville, North Carolina. So a couple windows, you know, got damaged. A flagpole got bent. But uh, the police during this uprising in Greenville, North Carolina, was majority of people in the streets at this time was black and brown forces. The police came out in force. They deployed 24 law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies in Greenville, North Carolina. And Greenville, North Carolina is a very, it's a growing city. It probably now has a population of like 100,000 people. And black people only make up 35% of this population. But we're the ones that's constantly attacked by this force on a consistent basis. Not even only the force, but the city itself that allows this force to have trillions of dollars just thrown to it to set up, you know, nothing but perpetuate war on our communities here in Greenville, North Carolina. So when we question windows over people's lives, we understand that it's important that the people understand that we back the people and not back our rhetoric of the status quo that says, you know, people should be somewhat held accountable because of a couple of smashed windows. But when we look at it, the only reason that people are in the streets is because the conditions that the system has created leaves, gives people no option but to do these things, you see. So we definitely demand that no charges be brought up on anybody that was caught up in the uprising. I assume that Greenville has its own black political establishment, black ministers and such. How did they react to these grassroots protests? Greenville, North Carolina has a history. It's traditional. It follows the civil rights movement. It follows the civil rights rhetoric and things like that, which is, you know, as a place. But the black leadership, the black misleadership here in Greenville, North Carolina, really plays a role to combat the rhetoric of Mapinduzi and other radical forces and voices that come out and speak out against the establishment 
because what happens is a lot of these black so-called leaders are somewhat incorporated with inside of the status quo here in Greenville, North Carolina, where they run nine profits that are doing nothing but poverty pimping the people, whether they have some kind of a status, whether they sit on some kind of advisory board or sit on city council. We have two black elected officials that sit on city council that continue to show that they are more willing to do what's in the interest of the system rather than the interest of the people. They both voted unanimously to give the police trillions of dollars for militarized efforts. They voted unanimously on programs that do nothing but gentrify our area and push black and brown people out of communities that they have been sitting in for years. They have spent $30 million on an overpass that has done nothing but uh, split a community that has been in a certain part of Greenville for years. And now when you go to this community, it doesn't even look the same. So uh, these black elected officials are more aligned with the status quo than they are with the masses of the people. They really don't move off an agenda of the masses. So we definitely try to combat the narrative of this black misleadership here in Greenville, North Carolina, that tells people that Mockenduzi is a radical organization or we just bent on destruction and things like that, which is far from the truth. It's far from the truth. We always say that revolution is not about destroying, but about building. So the black bourgeois is definitely a problem in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. And since you initiated these protests, how have the police been behaving in black Greenville? Because we live in Greenville, North Carolina, and the clubs is kind of isolated from the rest of the world. People really don't know about the things that go on in eastern North Carolina, Greenville specifically. The police, I feel as though they have a feeling that they can get away with certain things that other forces in other places wouldn't be able to get away from. They're very brutal. They're very aggressive. They're a terroristic force. They have killed two people in the last two years. They have abused many of people that we know of consistently. So the police here, it's the good old boy network. It's still the good old boy system. It still operates that way. Black people only making up 35% of the city population make up the overwhelming majority of everything when it comes to law enforcement, stops, arrests, searches, and things like that. Even though we know statistically that because of the college area that we live in, you know, it's a huge college population here, that white people are more likely to be found with contraband and things like this in their vehicles, but black people are still the majority of those stopped and searched. So we're still dealing with, you know, the good old boy elements here. It's the Klan in blue. So it hasn't changed from that. Nothing really has changed. And in demanding community control of the police, I assume that you really envision the community eventually policing itself, providing its own security. Right. No, that's true. Again, I think the police is an institution that is is not needed. And we know that historically and presently, we see that the police do nothing beneficial for colonized people. In fact, it's the total opposite. The only reason that they were created is to keep colonized people in bondage. So we want to live in the communities. We want to live in communities where we have the power to say who comes in and out and what they are able to do. But eventually, we do want to live in a society where these forces are non-existent in our community. We know that with the end of a capitalist system, that a lot of this criminality that is plagued on our people will not be, because black people are not predisposed to criminality. You know, we don't wake up when the ride, we don't wake up when the sell narcotics and things like that, but we are placed in conditions where we have to do anything to survive. You see, so with the abolishment of these things comes a better living conditions and better conditions for African people where criminality will not be so dominant in our neighborhoods. And with that, there will be no need. There is no need, but there's definitely you know, need for law enforcement. 
and we have the ability to protect ourselves and to make sure that what comes in our communities and what goes in our communities is something that we'll be able to control, confront, and handle. I think it's important that people really pay attention to the South because a lot of things is going to come from the South. What we're looking at, especially right now in this climate that we live in, a lot of industries is moving to the South due to the lack of labor laws, the right to work. Really, there's no strong unions and things like that. So, you know, these industries and these corporations have the ability to come down here and continue, you know, a history of, of super exploitation when it comes to black and brown people. But also at the same time, with these industries and all these jobs moving back down south because of those things that I just mentioned, it's causing this move for black people, black and brown people, coming back down to the south in a reverse migration type of way. And huge numbers of black and brown people coming back to the south, you see. And this huge number of black and brown people coming back to the south are still facing the same conditions that people left from so long ago, you know, you have military bases all throughout the South. So this element of domestic colonialism and the power structure is so prevalent because it's right here in our backyards. You see, we deal with the police force, terroristic police force. A lot of these things that happen in the South do not get the type of press that it should. You know, there was a man in Washington, North Carolina, which is like 30 minutes away from Greenwood, named uh, uh, Cedric Pritchett. Cedric Pritchard was shot in the back by an officer named Aaron Mobley that we know. We see it on video. He shot him in the back. But because of it, it gained the attention, like so many other cases that we see, it kind of went under the wayside. We have a, a young brother named Brandon Jordan here in Greenwood, North Carolina, that was shot down by multiple police officers, but nothing was said. Sean Rambert is another case that we deal with in Greenwood, North Carolina. He deals with mental issues. And um, the police came in his own neighborhood while he was dealing with an uh, issue Walking in his own neighborhood, the police gunned him down in his own neighborhood. But these names, I'm pretty sure that you probably never heard, you see. So it's a level of attention that must be placed on the South because a lot of things is coming out of the South and a lot of things is happening in the South that I think is very important for our struggle towards liberation. That was Dadan Wakiuri in Greenville, North Carolina, a member of Mapinduzi and the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Ashley Davis is the supervising psychologist and Coordinator for Diversity and Social Justice Initiative at Fordham University Counseling Center in New York City. She's the author of a recent article titled, Traditional Femininity Versus Strong Black Women Ideologies and Stress Among Black Women. We asked Dr. Davis just what is strong black women ideology? Strong black women ideology as even defined throughout the literature, really speaks to the idea of masking strength and vulnerability, not being attuned to our needs, caretaking for others, even to the detriment of our own inner resources. And it's an ideology in which we were socialized. It was a racially gendered socialization stemming from our experiences in which we and our ancestors were enslaved. So because of that, self-reliance became a norm, right? We think about the times you know, when our ancestors were enslaved, where women didn't have the luxury to embrace more traditional femininity norms, such as dependencies and being able to emotionality and allowing oneself to really take on more stereotypic images and activities. Because in thinking about it, oftentimes the children that we bore were shipped off the plantation and it was adaptive for us to take on this self-reliance as a means to survive. So to answer you, again, strong black women ideology, although on the face is something that we experience a sense of pride about, like, wow, you know, we have this strength and this resiliency. The only issue is that it can be problematic when it really 
doesn't allow us to be attuned to our holistic needs and to experience the wide range of human emotions and to not take care of ourselves because we're masking strength. Yes, just because norms were imposed during slavery doesn't mean that they're not useful after slavery. This is true. This is true. And it's been quite adaptive. And there's some positives as well, you know, and thinking about the resiliency that we're able to tap into, thinking about how the oppression, the systemic oppression, and you think about the disproportionate minority contact where a lot of our men are overrepresented within the criminal justice system. So yes, I'd argue that there is positivity to it in terms of, you know, the adaptive nature of us being able to navigate oppressive systems. So it's very adaptive for us and it's very much reflective of our defenses to be able to survive. And at the same time, we want to just be conscious of this tendency or this ideology because it could also be harmful simultaneously. You know, when we see Black women, for instance, who have fibroids, let's say fibroids, for instance, I'll use someone that I know personally as an example. It took until there was, she had half the pint that's necessary in the body. I believe you need like six pints of blood. She had half of that before she finally went to the doctor, right? Because she's so attuned to pushing through, you know, grinning and bearing it, being attuned to other people's needs, caretaking for others, so much so that real needs, even bodily needs are significantly neglected because of that idea of not being attuned to our needs and not going to the doctor, you know, based on what our body's communicating to us that we need to do and not seeking help when we need a therapist. Just not being able to say, wow, I'm struggling emotionally. I can use some support because of the strong black woman ideology. When it's internalized, it really hinders our ability to take care of ourselves in the ways in which we need to. Now, the strong black woman norm is in conflict with what you describe as traditional Eurocentric norms. And what are they? Yeah. So in terms of more traditional Eurocentric norms, it looks like dependency, for instance, like deferring to a husband. It looks like emotionality. It's easier to cry and to express emotions in that way, a lot more vulnerability in that way. It looks like a lot more attunement to physical appearance and valuing around thinness and so forth. And the thing I want to be able to name is, is I'm not saying that black women are not feminine. That's the furthest thing from what I'm saying. I'm saying but rather that there's a unique form of femininity that encompasses both traditionally feminine norms as well as non-traditional norms. So it's really a unique form of femininity due to a unique history, a unique racially gendered socialization experience, which is exacerbated by gender racial stereotypes. So that's what I mean when I'm saying how it really brings about unique experiences of stress. Now, this traditional Eurocentric norm that you just described, it also was imposed by patriarchy, a time when white women were dominated, of course, by males and treated as property and therefore had to strive to be thin and that standard of beauty, etc. Absolutely. So, and that's another thing that if you look at my dissertation, which is a different study than this, you know, I did find that there were traditional norms such as thinness and, you know, modesty, caretaking and domestic inclination. So, again, there are real implications of a more general socially gendered socialization experience. And also because of the unique racially gendered socialization experience are also non-traditional norms. And because of the non-traditional norms and the uniqueness of you know, black women's experience within America and how they socialize, or even current daily lived experiences, you know, Essay talked about intersectionality. So the unique experiences of race and gender as a simultaneous identity and incumbent upon experiences of stress. So um, it's important to because, think about the uniqueness of the norms and the uniqueness of the racially gendered socialization experience because it brings about unique experiences of stress. 
and there is stress inherent in the fact that black women experience gendered oppression and also racial oppression. Absolutely. And the interesting thing, though, is that, you know, there's the racial oppression, there's the gendered oppression, but then there's this, the uniqueness of it being a simultaneous unique experience. So not just sexism or not just racism, but like a racialized sexism or racially gendered oppression, unique to the experience of being a black woman within America and even globally. And how even the stereotypes are unique to black women, you know, like rather than the black male stereotype, like assume criminality or brute savage or, you know, all the think about the uniqueness of black men stereotypes the stereotype of them being a player or a baller, all these things, and how those, even though they're Black men, their stereotypes and experience is you know, very distinct from Black women's experience. And thinking about white women's stereotypes of being over-emotional or, or um, you know, hysterical, you know, all these terms that have significantly historical sexist connotations, how those stereotypes are even different than Black women's stereotypes. Black women's stereotypes being angry. You know, think about the Amos and Andy show, back in the 1940s where Sapphire, one of the main characters, was depicted as like really mean and, and just domineering and overbearing. And she was very nasty to us, to husband, very interpersonally challenging, even to others. Thinking about the angry black woman stereotype and the implications of that, right? You know, if we internalize this notion that we're angry, we're less likely to express ourselves, right? Or more likely to really suppress our needs, especially within a professional context. Like, wow, I don't know if I could voice my opinion. I might be perceived as angry. So, and that could cause a lot of issues. Conversely, if we internalize the notion that we are angry, we can regard anger as the only outlet by which to express emotion. And that could also cause a host of issues where there are a lot of conflicts, you know, in our experiences and real difficulty developing a sustaining meaningful connection. We think about the mammy stereotype. Think about the going with the wind, for instance. You know, think about that mammy stereotype of unwavering loyalty to the master and being attuned to the master's children's needs, suckling the master's children on the breast where her own children were neglected. And how an internalizing a mammy stereotype, it is very much the antithesis of the feminine standard of being thin and attractive. She had a rag on her head, she was obese and unkempt, didn't speak well, and was very much misattuned to her own needs and overly attuned to care taken for others. And when we internalize the mammy stereotype, even with the role in the family of taking care of everybody else's children and their needs and what do they need and neglecting your own needs, it can be really problematic. Then there's the Jezebel stereotype, which stems from slavery where black women were consistently raped, right? And then you have the product of the rape, but how rather than there being an alignment between the white women of the house, the mistress of the house and the, the enslaved African women, there was like a blaming, like, oh, you Jezebel, you enticed my husband rather than let's sort of unite and resist this patriarchal system. You know, that's not really how it unfolded. And so we have this Jezebel stereotype that is very in contrast with the feminine value of purity and sexual fidelity. And then again, the superwoman or strong black woman stereotype, which was largely based on the idea that we were psychologically and physically stronger than other women, which served as justification for our enslavement. We could certainly handle it was the idea you know, we were subhuman anyway. That's why, we, you know, we were also three-fifths of a person, even in the Constitution. You know, the other political reasons for why that happened in terms of numbers. But I'm just saying, in terms of the idea of us being three-fifths of a person, that idea, you know, was very much reflective of justification for enslavement of how we were stronger than others. And because even though there's a very harmful history around the development of that 
superwoman or, or strong black woman ideology is something that's been embraced as a cultural symbol. Where now you hear within our community, I'm a strong black woman, right? It's something that's stated with pride. And even though, yes, we can you know, affirm our strength and our inner resources and our resiliency, and we want to tap into that, you know, the inner resources of our ancestors, and that's something to really embrace with pride. At the same time, we want to be attuned to our holistic needs. Because in having the idea or endorsing the idea that we are psychologically and emotionally stronger than others and that we're impervious to harm and impervious to injury, it really doesn't allow us the full space to be authentically human and to have our needs met. All struggles against depression, the strugglers anticipate the creation of a new person, or at least creating conditions in which a better and healthier human being can walk the earth. Yeah. So I'm thinking about what psychology is. So it's the study of mental processes and observable behavior. That's just a scientific definition. But in terms of the nature of what psychology does, or rather therapy, what therapy does for us, is that it really allows us to gain a sense of self-insight, to become aware of different conflicts that are unresolved, to help us to process emotions that have been bothering us for a long time, even outside of to which we're aware. It really gives us a space to just, you know, have a holding environment to be able to be curious and to clarify the narrative. The reality is that if we don't deal with our emotions, they'll deal with us. One way or another, the emotions will come out. If we're so accustomed to suppressing our emotions or masking them with something else, like, okay, I'd rather feel anger than this more vulnerable emotion of shame or hurt or disappointment. The issue is that it'll manifest in terms of depressive symptoms where we're feeling like sadness or consistent fatigue, you're just feeling burnt out, exhausted all the time, or sleep issues, you know, and things like that. Irritability, where our relationships are suffering, those are some of the depressive symptoms reflective of unresolved emotions. Another way it can manifest in terms of anxiety symptoms, where we have these muscle tensions, the shoulders are tight, the neck is tight. You know, the, the back aches and, and the GI symptoms, all the things happening like that. So that's another way, you know, just consistently worrying and our minds not being quiet and just repetitive thoughts and overfixation on like something that happened yesterday or last week in a way that feels overwhelming for us. And another way that unresolved emotions can manifest is in terms of somatic symptoms. So that's when we experience emotional disturbances physically. And that's very common among those who hold marginalized identities. It's particularly common in the Black community where we somaticize, that is, we experience emotional disturbances physically. So we're more likely, due to you know, immune suppression linked to stress and unresolved emotions, to have headaches, having like yeast infection or even, or fibroids and other somatic issues. You know, think about the links to strokes, think about heart disease and how stress and unresolved emotions are very much linked to what's happening to us physiologically and some of the ailments that are more common in our communities, in addition to other elements like diet and so forth, but in depression, because you think about depression and anxiety, different psychological issues being very much how pathology is rooted in, in depression. But, you know, it's important to be able to process our emotions. And if we've internalized the idea that we're superhuman and that we're so much stronger and that we don't have needs, it can be very harmful to us and manifest in a host of different ways, such as depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, physical ailments. In the paper that you published, you talked about a study that you conducted, the results of the study of 200-plus Black women. What did you find? Yeah, so my study is called African-American Femininity, the Hegemonic and Unique Norms Defining Womanhood. And basically, it looked at the norms consistent with femininity among African-American women. And I found that there are both hegemonic, you know, both traditional feminine norms as well as non-traditional norms 
meaning not that black women are hypo-feminine, but rather they have a unique form of femininity, you know, as a result of their racially gendered socialization experience. And in terms of the norms, there were seven norms that I found. And the norms are spirituality, pride, self-reliance, care for children, thinness, domesticity, and modesty. So again, there were non-traditional norms reflective of our unique racially gendered socialization experience, as well as we also have traditional feminine norms. So the non-traditional norms that I found were the spirituality. So that speaks to the value and the connection with the transcendent or connection with God and how it's important for us to be able to cultivate that relationship. My study found pride. And that was two factors that was combined into one. So it was like racial pride and self-pride and then racial ethnic pride. And it became one as just pride. But a sense of pride in one's heritage, you know, a sense of pride in one's community is very consistent with Black womanhood. Then self-reliance, again, which was very adaptive, but now it's become a, a pretty solid norm in how we express our womanhood, you know, and even in plenty of qualitative studies. You say, well, you ask black women, well, how do you define womanhood? And yes, you'll hear the more traditional norms like caring for children and keeping a tidy dwelling and things like that, right? But also you saw the self-reliance, which inconsistent with the Eurocentric models of femininity, self-reliance came up for the black women in numerous studies. So this idea of being self-reliant, Right. It's important to keep in mind, though, when looking at the self-reliance norm, there was a scale that had items from self-reliance as well as strength. So the items that talked about, you know, I'm strong in others, we have to be strong to survive or things like that, those items didn't hold in the factor analysis. But the self-reliance items that talked about independence and the value of being able to take care of ourselves, which, again, stems from our unique socialization experience, was something that did hold. So that self-reliance piece. But then there were traditional norms like caring for children. And that's a really interesting one as we think about extended self-identity, you know, and how we're interconnected and how there's other mothers and you have members of the community who take the approach of it takes a village and they're caring for children, even if not raising them, but having a pretty significant instrumental role in the needs of the children of the community and so on. And then some other traditional norms that held were thinness, which was interesting, domesticity and modesty. So thinness, again, speaking to the value and physical appearance, right? And even though historically there was this idea that black women are impervious to eating concerns or, you know, body image concerns, because in our community, it was thought to be a lot more valued to be quote unquote sick or, you know, more curvy and things. Whereas in the white community, thinness has been a more idealized norm because we don't exist in a vacuum. We also are susceptible to these idealizations of Eurocentric standards of beauty and around thinness. So it was interesting that was one interesting finding, that thinness did hold for Black women as a norm, a value in thinness, which really speaks to the value in physical appearance and so forth, and being perceived as attractive. And then domesticity, so speaking to the value in keeping a clean home and, and cooking and, and things like that was something that held, which wasn't surprising, and modesty. So modesty, downplaying one's achievements. And this is a really interesting one, particularly among Black women, because, you know, it's not just like the regular modesty that you would think of like, okay, I'm downplaying my achievements. I don't want it to seem like I'm bragging, but there's a uniqueness within the black community, particularly reflective of like the crab in the barrel mentality where you don't want to seem like you lost your roots or like you think you're better and things like that. And it's especially exacerbated within male and female diets where given historical pieces where women would still be hired during the Jim Crow era where the women would have jobs like doing domestic work and the men just were unemployed. And it's like, well, what is the role of a man in a household? And then there'd be like tension between the two as a result of, of systemic oppression, 
But now a lot of black women, they feel pressure to downplay their accomplishments or their degrees in dating. You know, there's a lot of pressure to not want to seem like you're too smart or, and, and there's been a lot of accounts based on the online dating world about not putting the degrees on the profile and like not mentioning it on dates until you're like 10 dates in and all types of things have been said about this. So the modesty piece is something that's really interesting. And how has mass black incarceration affected black norms and behavior and ways of seeing the world? Yeah. Well, this has had a significant impact, you know, particularly as we think about black women, you know, thinking about that self-reliance norm and how, how it's been adaptive. It was adaptive because of the mass incarceration, among other factors, but there's the mass incarceration of the black men. So because of that, you know, many African-American women had to take on roles reflective of both traditionally feminine and traditionally masculine norms and happened to be the father and the mother, you know, as a simultaneous role. So because of that and because of all of the other types of oppression, because of the attacks on black and brown bodies, this hypervigilance, which can manifest in terms of self-reliance and not it's like a mistrust. And so these things are very much linked to systemic oppression and all of how that factors in to these norms. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation. 